0: UX Podcast is funded by James and myself, together with any contributions we can get from you, our listeners. You can contribute any amount you like, whenever you like, by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support.
1: UX Podcast Episode 255
0: I'm Panaxboom,
2: and I'm James Roy Lawson.
0: And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 197 countries and territories in the world, from France to Kenya.
2: Margot Bloomstein, a content strategist for over 20 years, international speaker, and author, joins us today to talk about trust.
0: Her latest book is released in March of 2021 and is aptly named Trustworthy. How the smartest brands beat cynicism and bridge the trust gap.
2: In the book, Margot provides example after example of how companies and civic organizations are renewing the bonds of trust with both customers and citizens.
0: Stay tuned after our chat with Margot for our post interview thoughts and reflections. So, when I started reading your book, uh, even in the first chapter in the intro, and uh, I realized, so this is about trust and brands and companies. And I th- thought the first thing that came into my mind, oh, she's gonna, probably gonna ask us, what are our favorite brands that we trust? And I realized, I really don't trust any brands anymore. I mean, I, I used to, there was like Volkswagen, and then there was the emission scandal, and then there was like Apple, but then I realized how little, how they're not transparent about the cobalt that they need for their batteries. And so this, this, the older I get, the more cynical I become, and the less I trust brands and companies. Is there a way to solve it? Is this the main problem? Are people actually getting more distrustful these days?
1: Well, as you said, if the, if the older you get, the more cynical you become. <laughs> don't, don't age. We need to adopt a Peter Pan mentality. <laughs> no, no, I think that um, you raise some really good points that I don't think are necessarily antithetical to trust. Um, like you mentioned, Apple isn't transparent about everything. Um, Volkswagen wasn't transparent uh, yeah. or, or honest, for that matter. Yeah. But I think if we look at that example specifically, if you look at Volkswagen's market share um, and, and some of the other metrics that, that we can follow around number of repeat customers over the years, and granted it's a long sales cycle there and all, um, they haven't lost Market share in in the wake of the emissions scandal um, in neither the the U S. or in Europe, and that I think is very telling about the nature of trust now. It's that when brands have it, when they have a loyal following, um, and more importantly, when their audience thinks of themselves as brand loyalists, when they say, "Well, I I'm a Volkswagen driver," it's mm. really tough to lose that. Because it is no longer just about losing someone's trust, but now around changing their identity. So if you think of yourself as a Volkswagen driver, you might look at the scandal and say, what were they thinking? I can't believe they did that. And then when it's time to buy a new car, still go out and you'll buy a Volkswagen. And that's because maybe they've changed, but you haven't. And I think we see that in the in the political sphere as well. Certainly in the U.S. around like the last election cycle, the last two presidential election cycles, because it used to be that if you caught a politician in a lie, that it would scuttle their campaign. And um, and certainly in the 2016 election cycle, politicians on both sides of the aisle were were kind of playing fast and loose with the truth. And it didn't change how their how their supporters how their followers um, still supported them. Uh, if you thought of yourself as a Donald Trump voter, if you thought of yourself as a Hillary Clinton voter, you still continued to be right up through the election.
2: So, so when we talk about brand damage, what's it damaging? Because if you say that the trust was, if you've already got the trust, and you know the, these. Um, various events that we talked about like with Volkswagen doesn't um destroy that trust um then what what where does the where does the damage lie what what damage does the da- brand damage cause
1: I think what we see as far as um damage to trust largely exists outside of the Mm, kind of the the scope and purview of individual brands, and which is, is kind of scary because it means you might feel like, well, wait, we're, we're not doing anything wrong. And yet it still feels like our marketing is falling flat or um, that sales cycles are taking longer or just that our messages aren't resonating. And it might be because your brand isn't doing anything wrong, but there's more of a kind of mindset of cynicism and distrust now. And I think that's Due to gaslighting in the political sphere, media maybe not being as um, as engaged and incisive as they used to be in holding politicians to task and holding um, brands to task on things, and um, and I think because now we're sort of swimming in this culture of of cynicism and fear and and feeling like. You can't trust anybody, they're all out to get you everybody's out to make a buck or whatever yeah. um that's that's a bit tougher to address certainly in in an individual organization because how can you be expected to shift all of society um But I think that that's kind of also what designers have always done. We've responded to the the challenges and constraints and um and zeitgeist to say. All right. This is the baggage that our users are bringing to the table. How can we make things better and more inspiring, and um, and feel more deserving of confidence for them?
2: I suppose as well, when you think about past examples, they're like existential um, damage situations. That you know, with the Volkswagen one, it didn't actually affect your experience of buying a Volkswagen. And and when Pear talks about the coal uh mining operations, it doesn't actually affect your use of an iPhone. Mm. The experience is unchanged, and unless you like Pear, he cares about these things deeply. So he's <laughs> going to have his brand, you know, <laughs> position over these things affected. Mm. But I'm not convinced the majority of people do, and that that ties in what you said about Volkswagen not losing share.
1: Mm. And oh, I think exactly. that even if um. Like we can look at those examples, and yes, writ large Volkswagen has not lost market share, um but certainly we do also see kind of in contrast to that, other mm, uh, kind of blips when brands have not necessarily lost trust, but um they're caught maybe holding uh, an unpopular political position or um or kind of promulgating a perspective that isn't in line with what most of their, um, their audience feels. And then you see how people vote with their dollars and say, well, I'm going to boycott them for a while. And, um, like in the U S target is a big kind of, um, uh, very popular brand, very popular store as like a place where you can get anything. Um, from from hardware and decorations and clothing and food and all sorts of odds and ends, and it's generally a good shopping experience and all. Their website offers a pretty good user experience, and um, over the years they've uh, they've generally had pretty, uh, I think, a good rapport with their target audience. But then there have been times where things have come to light, where um, several years ago in the, um, I believe it was in the gubernatorial race in Minnesota, uh, where they're based, a number of candidates were running for office, and they chose to donate to the one candidate that at the time um, was, uh, that opposed gay marriage. And for a lot of people that considered themselves Target shoppers, that were loyal to that brand, you saw how they stepped away and said, ugh, I can't can't shop there anymore. It didn't necessarily affect their identity, though, and their sense of self, because when Target kind of made that right and started making donations and talking about the donations that they were making then to other candidates and um, more socially progressive causes, you saw how people went back to the brand. And um, kind of over the past few years, organizations like Sleeping Giants have been really good at surfacing those issues and saying, hey, do you, do you know where your dollars are going when you're buying that sandwich or shopping at that that craft store? Um, do you know what sort of uh, campaigns those brands are, are choosing to invest your dollars in? And it's caused people to, to kind of vote with their dollars and say, all right, well, I'm going to go elsewhere for a while. It hasn't necessarily changed their, their sense of self and sense of identity, though. And I think When we when we dig into that further, there are opportunities to then say, well, how do we how do we bring people back to organizations? And is it just a matter of kind of following the money or can organizations themselves kind of open up and say, learn more about who we are if it helps you figure out who you are, and if you feel like your values align with ours, and you do want to shop here, if you do want to learn from us or or access services here.
0: Fantastic. Uh, so I also want to get, I mean, now I'm, I started talking about your book there, and what's appealing about your book, and what I really love it, is that it's so well-structured. So it really feels appealing to get into, uh, which I think is, I mean, it builds trust. Uh, so in the book, you have these like three main uh, overarching chapters, which are the voice, the volume, and the vulnerability. And I think what we're touching upon now was a bit of the vulnerability. But I, w- I want to get back to st- start starting out with the voice, uh, which I think you call uh, the unique identifiable personality that comes through in everything a company says or does. And it seems to me that this is where you do have to start. You have to figure out the way you speak which is really interesting and you you offer up consistency uh, and even here you start talking start talking about transparency as well which p- becomes a really important theme throughout the book man how h- how do you start how do you think about this because sometimes it feels Am I supposed to invent something? Do I invent a voice that's not really me? But I, I at least at least I have to be consistent.
1: Uh, I feel like that's one of those just fundamental kind of table stakes <laughs> questions of user experience design too. Like yeah. first yeah. know thyself, and um, and it mm-hmm. sort of gets to something that that maybe even precedes uh, user experience, like the way we talk about it today. Because I feel like in the kind of in the early days of the web as we were making the modern web in maybe like late 90s, early early 2000s, um, you know, when most of the web was brochureware, brands had a decent sense of self because I think for most organizations, it was a matter of just saying, well, what do we do in our in our brick and mortar stores and in our print collateral? And great, now let's shove that up on the website. And who cares if it resonates with our users? What is even a user? We have customers and whatnot. And um, and that wasn't great. It wasn't really a great time for the web, but that was kind of where we started out and, you know, live and learn and do it better. And um, that's when we started, I think, bringing more user research and user-centered design into the process to say, well, let's let's drag the pendulum back over to the other side now. Not just about us as brands, but also... What about the people that, that we're hoping to engage? What about our users and all? And you saw how user-centered design, user-driven design started to help some organizations evolve. I think that the risk in that, the risk that I saw as, as a content strategist 20 years ago and, and still see today in some industries is that if we focus all of our our communication as far as how we speak and the topics on which we speak, if we focus that all just around the needs of our audiences, we can you run the risk of losing yourself in that. So I think this is an opportunity to bring that pendulum back to the middle then to say, our organization. How are we different from our closest competitors? Um, what makes us unique? Maybe in terms of the services that we highlight, and then the tone of voice and the look and feel that we bring to it. And I think that that's so necessary, because otherwise, by by all rights and standards. In an industry that has a that maybe is more of a commodity um, and serves a, a fairly consistent target audience, every organization within that industry should look and sound the same if they don't have a distinct sense of identity. Um, and I mean, I always make the comparison to like the airline industry. If I want to fly um, across the across the U.S., i I'm based in Boston, so if I want to fly Boston. To um to San Francisco or L.A., I could fly JetBlue, I could fly um, Virgin America, used to be at least, um, or United, or um, there's a number of other carriers. A lot of them are at about the same price point, same level of service, but I know where I've got my my loyalty airline miles and all, and I know which brand just feels most um most appropriate to me um where I feel most comfortable and the way I know that are from the cues on the website the different experience in the in-flight experience um and the the design of the experience because it is distinct in terms of tone of voice and level of detail and the look and feel and the overall service design and uh so to get to your question, though, about about having that unique, distinct voice, I think that's something that serves, serves us if you're representing a brand. It serves your target audience because it helps them say, oh, this is the right one for me. So branding and evolving that unique, consistent voice is... Um, it's something that helps make decisions easier for your target audience, and when we can make decisions easier and enable our audiences to um, to make decisions with more confidence, that takes stress off of them. And I think that's something that everybody needs right now.
2: So I think when when you hear brand voice, of course you instantly think about the words, the the the, the things that are said to you or presented to you in word format. But you're talking here as well about the um, the look and feel, the, so the, the the visual brand, and uh, you said the experience too. So the the brand experience and all that together then becomes the personality of the the brand.
1: Right, right. I mean, my background is in content strategy and brand driven content strategy, and before that, my my academic background is in visual design, and I th- I guess I still think of them very closely related, even if in content strategy. We are, we're largely executing more through, through content and copy and then maybe eventually through editorial style guidelines and, and those kinds of choices that maybe affect copy more. Um, I think all of this still applies when you're evolving an identity, when you're evolving a voice. It applies both visually and verbally. Um, so to both word choice and content types, as well as typography and color and the density of information on the page.
2: Yeah, because you're going to get, if you don't get the whole personality right, then that's going to feel, it's going to feel disjointed, I guess, as a, you know, when you're, when you're meeting that personality, you're going to think, well, there's something a bit weird about this when it's, right. like, you know, you've got flash you've got flashing buttons on the website, and you're trying to be a certain kind of like calming, you know, comforting brand or whatever, you're going to, you're going to get a tilt in your head.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think we've all had those sort of like weird um discomforting kind of experiences where a brand looks one way and sounds another and you're like why are you Mm. you dressed in a suit and using all these like short truncated incomplete sentences what's going on there Um, and I think that goes back to well do you have a some sort of consistent baseline message architecture or hierarchy of communication goals that says is it most important for you to project innovation or maybe being traditional or being welcoming? What's most important? And then how does that then guide your word choice, your content types and look and feel? And um, and I think when brands can establish that kind of consistent platform um, to guide their voice visually and verbally, that's what helps them evolve over time. It helps their audience know what to expect. It also helps all of their internal copywriters and designers and any freelancers they use know how to um, develop calls to action and imagery that's right for the brand and distinct for the brand so that even when you strip away the logo, you still know who it is uh, with whom you're engaging.
0: Mm. I really I really like how you bring up the point of break down silos, silos to create consistency because that's the thing. As you grow as a company, of course, people stop Talking to each other over departments, so there's someone over there and someone over there. They're not talking to each other, but they all have customer-facing jobs, and they start speaking in different ways. And if they're not talking to each other, that would be completely different.
1: Right, right. And I think mm. the um, the very like we can talk about user experience and content mm. strategy and mm. building mm. trust at a very mm. lofty theoretical level, but mm. the magic happens and the good work happens when we then operationalize that and talk about it at a tactical level and i think within um looking at this kind of from a content strategy and a creative direction creative uh, design perspective i think that one of the ways that we operationalized trust and um And look at it from a voice perspective as far as how do we develop a consistent voice over time? It's by investing in creating tactical tools like editorial style guidelines and creative briefs um, and, uh, and visual style guides and editorial calendars that say no matter who is manifesting the brand, Here's how we're going to all do it correctly and consistently over time and across channels. And it turns out that's the stuff that also helps organizations operate more efficiently and save budget. Because when you have an editorial style guide and you have a visual style guide, and it's already been approved and vetted by the legal department, if you work within it, oftentimes you don't have to have legal approve every every outcome of yeah. it
2: and i guess this leads us on to volume as well doesn't it because um when you in the section of the book when you're talking about volume and volume being um how how um, you communicate how much you communicate and the length and the detail of the communication um then um that is the user experience aspect of it you know, how how loud you have to communicate in order to support the user experience and if you've got the style guide i guess the voice is already there then that makes it an easier tactical choice about how how long to go, how short to go, or?
1: Right, right. Well, and I think, and so to be clear, by volume, um, I don't mean pitch or loudness or something, <laughs> uh, but rather just how much mm. are you yeah, saying? All caps. So length and <laughs> yeah. level of detail, again, visually and verbally. So if you're a, a brand like IKEA, that's maybe known for um, simplicity and you've got, simplicity and design for everyone that kind of democratic sort of perspective in your message Mm -hmm. architecture then yeah it probably makes sense for the volume of content that you're producing to not be overly detailed and burdened down by a lot of nuance your diagrams should be a bit cleaner and spare um So that hopefully people get past the the sort of cliched stereotype of putting together IKEA furniture and say, no, this is easy and it's laid out here in in fewer than a dozen steps, ideally. (laughs) Hmm. Um, So that as you're looking at anything from diagrams, imagery on the website to then um, product description copy, it shouldn't be burdened down by detail if part of your message architecture is around simplicity and being welcoming and accessible to everyone. And so those sort of um, guidelines and values can help determine how much you say too. And in, um, in Trustworthy, in the book, I interviewed a lot of different organizations, and I was struck by when people come to that question of, well, How much should I write? How long should a blog post be? You know, should we be doing a lot of long-form copy? And how detailed should our diagrams be? There is no one monolithic answer that says, this is the perfect length and level of detail. But rather, we need to ask, well, how much information is enough so that your audience can make confident decisions, so they can make a good decision and feel confident about it afterward? Because that's what builds Mm. trust. And it isn't so much just what builds trust between your user and your brand, but also how you're starting to reinvigorate your user's ability to trust themselves, to feel confident Mm. in maybe the product purchase they just made, or that they they got the results that they needed in working with their doctor online or in getting information from the government. And um, I spoke with folks at gov.uk when they were going through their audit and removing thousands and thousands of pages from um, from the government produced web content. They were in effect saying, Less is more. We shouldn't be producing more content and adding more detail to to tough interactions with the government. Let's simplify things. And then in the other extreme, you have organizations, um, like many retailers, that if they're selling a bigger ticket product, like one of the ones that I speak with is uh, Crutchfield Electronics, and they've felt um, and learned by researching their audience that, no, their audience wants more detail. They want to give them really, really long pages helping them choose uh, a new stereo or a new camera lens. They want to give them lots of content and lots of ways to sift through it because their audience likes to have more to read and they want to be able to engage with the content a lot more before they make a decision. That's what builds their confidence. So it's really about measuring confidence, not character counts. And that's a mm. tough thing, I think, for many brands. But that's what helps us best help our audiences.
0: And it's probably tough for people who create content as well because it, it, sometimes they value their work more if they produce more content. Oh, you're
2: paid by word. Right. <laughs> you've, been, you've been paid to make 5,000 yeah. words, so you do 5,000 mm. words. <laughs>
1: right, right. We really need to assess mm. what's the effect and impact mm. of our work, not just how much are we working
2: hmm. I, I do really love the fact that you've got so many examples f- um, that are from like, the public sector you mentioned them the, um, the UK gov um, website because um, you know with brands y- you automatically I think think of you know this, the classic ones it's the coca-cola the apple it's all these kind of logo types that we can all recognize instantly in those surveys but what you say in the book is that this applies to services and and institutions um, as much as those commercial brands,
1: right? Well, I think that um, every year we see surveys about the, the most trusted brands in in different industries and what brands are worth the most from from a trust perspective. And I think there's there's value in those kind of reports, but I don't know that most um, that most practitioners, most CMOs, and chief creative officers can really learn what to do and emulate then in their own organizations from those reports. And I think that trust is, um, it's not just a big logo, big budget kind of thing. It's a, it's a transactional thing. And unless we operationalize how we create trust, how we foster trust, um, we kind of lose it to the details. Um, and, uh, I mean, as we, say, as we say in design, God is in the details. Well, trust is too. We need to get those details right as a matter of habit and the choices that we make every day in, in the content that we're prescribing, in the calls to action, the taxonomy, the error messaging, um, the, the imagery that we're introducing, the iconography. We need to build those things from a point of, of fostering trust. If we want the big picture of our brands to also foster trust.
0: Wow! Thanks. Uh, we're approaching the end of the end of the interview, but I really want you to bring home the point of vulnerability because I think this is the thing that a lot of companies struggle with. I really appreciate you, like, bringing home the point of, about the difference between compassion and empathy as well. In that compassion, being that you you decide to care even if you don't understand the other person. Uh, And this whole uh, concept of vulnerability, of course, within a brand and company uh, arena means that you have to be transparent about when you fail and things like that. I think companies, a lot of companies really don't understand why they have to.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, with what you were just mentioning around compassion versus empathy, um, we talk so much about empathy in in user experience design. And... um, as I was researching uh, some of the the examples in trustworthy, in one of the conversations I had, someone said to me, "You know, isn't that just incredibly arrogant to assume that we could understand all of the nuances um, and and conditions uh, that our that our audiences are experiencing, and also that we would need to in order to be able to design effectively for them? Maybe instead of trying to 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 operate from a point of empathy, we can instead just begin to have a little compassion for them and say, even if I don't fully understand what you're going through or the baggage that you bring to this experience, you're a fellow human and I can respect that. And I can respect that you deserve a good experience that meets your needs and helps you feel confident as you go through your day. And if we can at least hit that, that's, that's going pretty far for many organizations. And um, in the book, when I talk about vulnerability, again, to, to kind of get beyond that as a buzzword, we talk sometimes about vulnerability in interpersonal experience, but not so much from a, an organizational level experience. And I think that's because as we look over the past few decades, there's been a mindset in many industries of, you know, don't be vulnerable. Don't don't expose yourself for being yeah. human. I mean, what a huge risk to take there. Don't expose that you comprise humans who make mistakes. Um, but Yeah, because then
2: you'd be eaten by your competitors exactly. if you're shown to be making mistakes. I mean, yeah, God, your competitors will jump on you.
1: What what a horrible thing. But I think as we've begun to realize we don't have to operate like we're we're bigger than we are or that we're so infallible. One of the things that helps endear our 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 brands to our audiences and helps establish rapport between organizations and um, and their customers is by exposing the very human um, nature of evolution and learning and saying, oh, we don't always get it right, but here's how we're trying to improve. Here's our commitment to you to improve. Um, and I think one of the, the very recent examples of that is if we look at the organization Zoom, when... Um, They've been in such a spotlight because they're they're kind of in everybody's screen. They're in your face because you're in their faces <laughs> um, most of every day. And um, over the past year, they've they've been really challenged by that because their user base has exploded tremendously. Like they were originally just targeting business users that were supported by IT departments, and then within a few months into 2020, suddenly they were supporting hundreds of thousands more users, most of whom didn't have IT departments because they were people calling in from home or preschool teachers or college instructors or people that were looking to set up a happy hour with friends or um, or a family meal virtually. And they weren't calling in with the support of an IT department or anybody saying, here's how you do that securely. Here's why you might want to have a password or a waiting room on that. And as a result, they started seeing problems with with Zoom bombers and um, and other issues of, of security. And yeah, the organization could have said, hey, you're using it wrong. We didn't intend it to be used like this by so many people at once. And instead, on um, I believe it came out on April 1st, their CEO uh, kind of released this long Mia culpa sort of blog post saying, yeah, you know, we've made improvements, but we're still seeing problems and and we realize we can support you better. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're already doing. And um, it was just a wonderful point of vulnerability where I think he did everything right because he accepted blame in the singular. I, I think his post started out by saying, I'm sorry. And Then he broadened credit to people that were making changes. He made that plural to say, here's what we're going to do differently. Here's how you can hold me accountable and said, you know, I'm going to be holding these different public forums. Um, We're going to be submitting to an outside review. You can expect these kinds of reports from me. Um, And they made things personal. They spoke in active voice. Um, He he socialized the credit, but kept the, I guess, the blame personal and kept the apology personal, Mm. too. And I think that that's a great way of saying, we've made some mistakes. Here's how we're improving. And here's how we're going to take you along on that journey, too, because it's by offering that kind of public accountability and bringing the audience closer of saying, here's how you can keep tabs on what we're doing. Um, that they're really leaning into vulnerability and creating a more loyal audience there too. And that's something that we've seen from, from Zoom, from TED as they've evolved over time, from BuzzFeed. They're really good at kind of prototyping in public and, and bringing in ideas or soliciting input from their audience. And I think it's those types of things that are risky, but when you weigh the risk against the potential for greater reward in the form of a more loyal, invested audience, that's enormous. And the payoff then is huge too.
2: Wonderful. That's, um, that's a good note to, um, to finish on, I think, now today, Margo. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been great fun.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So I feel sort of caught out by how Margot responded to my first examples with the Volkswagen and Apple, uh, because she's absolutely right in that I still drive Volkswagen and I still use and buy Apple products. Uh, and I've, I've thought about this since, since the interview. It, it really comes down a lot to uh, the trust perhaps uh, is uh, unbalanced in the sense that I maybe don't take everything at face value, But it doesn't mean I leave the business or service because in those specific examples, the cost of leaving is really, really high. Uh, It would mean that I would have to make a lot of choices and spend a lot of money. uh, And I would have to research whatever I wanted to move towards, uh, which means that there are so many parameters involved here when I'm making a decision about not trusting someone, but then deciding to trust someone else as well.
2: Yeah, now it's, it's, it is a really interesting example because you are so invested in, in Apple and their products that yeah. it, it, it's, not a, it's not a simple thing to do to abandon them or to move on to someone else. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you instead got really kind of angry and upset with your, the, the maker of your breakfast cereal, it'd be pretty trivial for you to switch brand of breakfast cereal. Um, you're not as invested in that brand. As exactly. You are of Apple, yeah. I mean, Apple comes into many, many different aspects of your life and your family. So it, it's a it, it's really interesting to see just you know how important that whole thing of of brand loyalty is, and you understand why some of oh, these big organisations really do work mm-hmm. on you being it more and more a, a, a long term part of their lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, I uh, you know, said t- Toyota, same thing. I remember the first time I bought a Toyota, they they joked with me a little bit about how well you know the most important thing is getting to buy the first one. Yeah, like um, yeah. I, 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 the sales guy I had he was quite amusing and he was quite open about that and he says mm. most people just keep on buying them and I think I'm now what is, it, a, is it a sixth Toyota? Mm. so he was completely right
0: it makes sense it becomes, and becomes and as Margot was saying it becomes part of your identity so that's, it's mm. hard to leave something that you feel is part of your identity and that's why it's a long game so mm. I no longer feel as passionately about it as being a part of my identity but that doesn't mean I leave just yet, that can take many many years course
2: yeah because it becomes it Mm -hmm. becomes a bigger challenge to work out where to go than to keep on going exactly i wonder as well about Mm -hmm. when we think about um the the brand uh, the 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 brand as a personality is almost as a person um when we think about the aspects margaret has been talking about with voice and, and volume and vulnerability when we work as with ux we talk about how you know the people-centric or putting the user in the focus and doing research and all, all these kind of aspects mm-hmm. of our work. But I wonder when it comes to brand, I think a lot of the time we, we apply brand guidelines, we follow them, we we, we follow tone of voice, and all these kind of things. There are stuff we refer to as part of our designing. And it struck me, listening back to the interview, about how maybe we need to be better at, at literally looking as the brand, considering the brand as a personality, as almost a persona in this, mm-hmm. this another actor in the um, in the designing pr- process and looking how our users look upon the brand better and understand that relationship so we can b- design more suitably.
0: That's a really good point because I th- I've i seen body-storming exercises where one person pretends to be a website and the website answers the person who's trying to search for something. And, and it, it essentially turns into a conversation. And what everyone has to remember, of course, is that people are in touch with companies they usually don't call a specific person at the company. They call the company, and they are in touch with several different people. And if those people uh, aren't aligned in what they're saying or they're using different vocabulary, you're starting to wonder, well, why don't you know that? Because I talked to this other person, and they know it. And you, as a as a person having that conversation, uh, you're treating the company as the person, and you don't really all of a sudden understand how two different people from the same company can have different views uh, it's really fascinating and it's it's so true that uh, if we start thinking that way it becomes more clear to everyone involved as well in understanding why it's important because we'd love to put down brand guidelines sometimes and oh it's we, we're following this but it doesn't feel personal well the personality isn't you it's the company
2: mm. I think it's exactly the point that Margot was trying to make to us about um, you know if expectations and that if you yeah. as, a, as a user go somewhere and you know the, the text is too short or too long it's because it doesn't match that, that brand idea or that personality that you had in, in mind so we know that sometimes you can have real trouble understanding someone if you've kind of got off on the wrong foot or if they're if they're not behaving maybe in the way you, you used to them in behaving or expecting so there mm-hmm. becomes that kind of weird clash that makes things almost impossible to understand.
0: Exactly. And she—I um, related to that, she, she actually talks about brands also as human beings when she talks about growth, because it's about a person growing from a child to a teen- teenager, to an adult. And as companies grow and become larger, it's harder to be consistent with that voice. It's harder to appear as that person. Uh, so that analogy actually works throughout when you think about it.
2: I love the whole thing about brand arrogance mm-hmm. and and that whole thing of it would be so kind of presumptuous to think that a company will know everything about its customers and users and and never get it wrong or never kind of miss something or yeah. um <laughs> you know so that creating that openness and and being honest and transparent about when you miss something when you get it wrong, when you fail um I love it
0: mm, definitely
2: recommend listening for you after this um what you what what we got per
0: We have got uh, episode 105, containing interviews with Nicole Fenton, Alistair Somerville, and Mike Atherton.
2: Yeah, that was an adventure with um, three interviews. So Nicole Fenton, she's a content strategist. Um, Mike Atherton is an information architect. And Alistair, well, he does some wonderful work with sensory um, experiences um, and-
0: Accessibility. Yep. Just he's trying to guide us into a future that we as designers haven't seen yet.
2: <laughs> like that, Pa. Good way of putting mm. it. So, show notes for this episode and a full transcript can be found on uxpodcast.com if you can't get to them directly from wherever you are listening to us now.
0: Remember to keep moving.
2: See you on the other side. Do Volkswagens go when they retire?
0: I don't know, James. Where do Volkswagens go when they retire?
2: The old Volkshome. <laughs>